2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Connecticut's tax tax policies are blamed for making the state economy stagnant and causing residents to flee. According to TrendCT.org, from 2011 to 2015, 76,000 people, or 2.6% of the population, have moved to another state, often for the South. Supporters of tax reform in the state say Connecticut's troubles only got worse when it adopted income tax in 1991. This Sunday is the 25th anniversary of the legislature's vote, what was described as razor-thin approval back then, and caused so much anger among locals that 40,000 residents traveled to the Capitol to protest later that year. How do you feel about Connecticut's income tax? Do you think the state is worse off because lawmakers approved the tax 25 years ago? Actually, were you even at that protest in 1991? Join the conversation 860 275 7266. Comment on our website wmpr.org wherewe live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewe live. In studio with me to talk about the history of our state income taxes. Carol Platt Lee Bao, president of the Yankee <laughs> Institute for Public Policy. Did I get it right, Carol? Oh, pretty close. It's impressive. And also um, joining us by phone is the former comptroller of the state of Connecticut, back then, Bill Curry. Hi, Bill.
1: Great to be with you. I'll
2: start off with Carol. Let's talk about the income tax and, you know, how big of a boon has it been for Connecticut? Well, uh, it's been a big boon for
0: a Connecticut state government in a lot of ways. Since uh, 1991, the state's taken in $126 billion. And uh, so uh, obviously uh, for state government, it's brought in a lot of money. What it's done for Connecticut's people is obviously a much different question.
2: And so um, you're with the Yankee Institute, obviously uh, one of the groups that's been advocating tax reform. Uh, Tell us what went wrong with this proposal uh, when it was first introduced, and when it was passed, and uh, any broken promises to residents here? Sure. Uh, You know, we are
0: advocating not just tax reform, but really spending reform. But one of the things that went wrong was that along with the what you correctly characterized as razor-thin approval for the income tax came along this prom- promise that there would also be a spending cap. And what the spending cap was intended to do, at least the way it was presented to Connecticut's people, was it was intended to uh, make sure that spending stayed within sustainable levels. In other words, that uh, politicians in Hartford didn't get hold of a new pot of money and then just go and blow it. And uh, we all know how that ended, don't we, Lucy?
2: <laughs> I want to bring Bill Curry into the conversation. Take us back to 1991, Bill.
1: Well, uh, the uh, y- y- as you-, you mentioned, the 40,000 people should showed up at the state capitol, Lowell Weicker, uh, who was the object of their fury, actually went out among them. I remember very specifically that he was spat upon during that uh, encounter. And um, the, the, the state was, uh, uh, was just split uh, deeply about it. Uh, the, the charge among the conservatives was that Weicker had run saying that he wouldn't uh, uh, enact an income tax. And, um, and that's true. One of the things that every new governor gets, though, in Connecticut, or many new governors get, is the surprise that the previous governor was lying about the deficit, and um, and so you all you get into office. Happened to Dan Malloy. It happened to Al Grasso. Certainly happened to uh, Lowell Liker. There was a huge state deficit. A sense, a bipartisan sense, that they'd come to a you know a real Armageddon then. And that created the context in which the tax was uh, proposed uh, and, uh, and finally enacted. Um, and, um, and I think that you know, my own feelings about it were deeply mixed at the time. Uh, and uh, I give Lowell Weicker enormous credit for the courage of what he did in enacting the tax. And I agree strongly that it is a necessary part of a template for any uh, tax structure to work uh, fairly. Uh, that's why forty-three states have one. Uh, and um, um, I would say, though, that there was a great promise made to the working middle class. And in, in this sense, Carol and I, I think, uh, may agree some. But the tax raised uh, the, the, the the tax put a four and a half percent, you know, wage tax essentially on on all income, while cutting from fourteen and a half percent taxes on passive income, in, uh, dividends, interest, capital gains. And so a lot of the money raised actually went to a tax cut for the very well-to-do. And uh, one of the first mysteries was how we very quickly got back into fiscal trouble. Um, People said, "Wow, you've you've just—you've just—you know—you've just gone after my uh, my paycheck," and uh, and the states back in crisis just a couple of years later. I just say one other thing very quickly, and that is that for me the problem, the biggest problem was that for years people like me had 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 promised voters that an income tax would include tax relief uh along with spending reform that it would that it would include reductions in what i saw as the real culprit in our state tax structure which is the property tax which falls so heavily on cities small uh, towns uh, small businesses working families and um and we had promised people that that and the regressive sales tax would be reduced as part of an overall package. And instead, we reduced those uh, uh, those taxes on the very wealthy with promises we would fix it uh, uh, in the future. And this is the 25th anniversary, and we still haven't.
0: Well, uh, yes. And as we know... Uh, the wealthy, as Bill puts it, are some of the most mobile people in the country, and there are yep. lots of states uh, that welcome them with open arms. And what we've seen is um, a, 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 a really significant out-migration. Uh, 237,000 people net have left the state, taking with them $13.7 billion in taxable income. And they've gone to states where they they feel welcome. And, you know, at first, the income tax was supposed to be relatively flat. Now we have a number of different structures. They've gone up from 4.5% to 6.99% at the highest. And, Bill, as you know, uh, Connecticut has the uh, second heaviest tax burden in the entire United States. And it would be one thing if we all looked around and saw, in in a sense, a, a utopia with beautiful roads, and uh, you know infrastructure galore and all kinds of wonderful things but you know sadly none of the promises that really undergirded that the the calls for the income tax have ever materialized as as you point out and uh, I understand why the people of the state are unhappy I mean look at us you know now we have the highest state debt per capita in the United States and we have the second highest unfunded liabilities per capita in the United States, and so it's hard to figure out exactly uh, what the voters, the the re- regular working people of the state, have have gotten for the 126 billion that's come to Hartford.
1: I want well, to me go- just say a couple oh. things, Carol. I mean, first <laughs> of all, the um, as I as I mentioned, uh, when we had, when we enacted that four and a half percent tax. Uh, uh, somewhere between a third and a half of the revenues went to bringing down tax rates um, uh, by two thirds on those very, on those same very wealthy uh... uh Connecticut residents, uh, and, uh, and 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 apparently that wasn't enough to keep them. But I'm always <laughs> I'm always uh, skeptical uh, of, uh, of of those migration figures. Whenever a fireman retires to Florida, it's for the weather. And whenever a wealthy person retires to Florida, it's because of our tax structure, according to this debate.
0: Well, and, th- these uh, are from these numbers, Bill, are taken from census figures.
1: But the census doesn't tell you why.
0: No, of course the and, and, and census and doesn't, sort of like but when, it does, you know, when, it when, does when G tell you. When GE
1: moves to Boston, they say it's for our tax structure, and then it turns out they never paid any taxes. <laughs>
0: But and it's what? Just a what but of the fact no.
1: People move for different reasons.
0: Bill, GE was also worried about the unfunded liabilities coming down the pike, and they knew what it would mean for them if if they stayed. They knew what it would mean in terms of taxes, given we, we the massive liabilities unfunded control, liabilities. And Bill, they,
2: they, they and, and Bill. And Bill but, 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 okay, but, let's but, not talk over one another. Let's no, let's I'm hear sorry, from buddy, Bill, but, and but, then we'll go to Carol. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Bill. Bill, you well, can no, finish. it. I
1: just here. want to say that. Uh, again, GE is a perfect example, and you can say, "Well, they were worried about some other taxes that somehow they'd be cornered into paying someday." I kind of doubt it, and and I I mean I agree that I, I think that some of this is true. By the way, I just think that it's I think that it's overstated. Many people on the uh, again, I think the Yankee policy institute has been one of them has talked about the the related to the question of economic growth to the tax and and the stagnation in wages. But wages have stagnated in all 50 states um, for 40 years, for instance, well before Connecticut adopted an income tax. And it's just it's very hard for me to connect these problems in an empirical and logical way. No, I do no, think it, that the property tax we pay in this state, on the other hand, is easy to connect to economic problems. And they aren't the economic problems of the super-rich and of large corporations, but of the small businesses that produce two-thirds of the jobs. And that part of the promise that we would bring down the regressive tax on the poor, the sales tax, and the tax that is so regressive to the middle class and to small businesses and homeowners, the property tax, our failure to keep those promises, I think the sales tax affects consumer demand to some degree, and the property tax is an overwhelming burden on the middle class. And so uh, I think that what this state needs to do is finish the job. Uh, uh, part of the problem here is that they did, they did only half of what they were supposed to do, and the half they didn't do, as so often happens, was they didn't keep their promise to the middle class, and the promise was that tax reform would include property tax and sales tax reform, which would be a relief the working middle class,
2: well, and, and we didn't Bill, do it. Bill, can I ask, um, this is where we live, I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel, on the phone is Bill Curry and in-studio Carol Platt-Lebow. What about the promise to, for the spending cap? I mean, aren't we in a worse situation now than back in the 90s in terms of this looming deficit? Um, uh,
0: we absolutely are. And if I could just circle back to uh, something Bill said, you know, the fact is that when you compare the states with the nine, the nine highest income tax states versus the nine zero income tax states, the zero income tax states had more than 7% higher job creation, they had 12.3% higher personal income growth, and a gross total state product of six point two percent versus four point six percent for the high income tax states. So I just wanted to clear yeah, and, that up. But they when, also have higher, they, way, tax, right? off, they uh, have higher sales tax, right? They do have higher sales tax. But part of part of we, we Connecticut's to, you know, par- Bill, uh, may I anyway. may I just finish <laughs> for a moment? Yep, I'm sorry. Part of, that's okay. Part of uh, part of Connecticut's problem is that we have high taxes in every category. So for example Florida has a property tax, although it is lower than Connecticut's, but it also has no income tax, no death tax, and we're the only state in the entire United States with a state gift tax. So it's the overall tax burden yes. and the explosion of spending, Lucy, as you were talking about. Can because, I, as mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'm sorry, may I just throw Real out... Real quick, because I want to get to a call. Sure. The fact that since 1991, state growth in state spending totaled 187
2: percent. Josh from Guilford, you're on where we live, Josh.
3: Hey, how are you? Good. Um, so I'm listening to this, and this has been frustrating me for a while here. Um, you know, it seems like we're at a race to the bottom with other states competing with uh, over our tax structures and our tax rates. I would like to point out that Connecticut, for all what the woman from the Yankee Institute, Yankee Institute talked about, with the low tax states, We have a really really high quality of life here and places like Arkansas just don't and you know we pay for that and so she makes it sound like we're living in a dystopian society which we're not that's one number two as far as the tax burden is concerned the places who have these small and very low tax rates they need to start paying their own way because blue states on average like ours send back more money to the federal government we get back and those states get more so we're actually paying for them and then lastly where, how, how long do you think those states are going to have their low tax rates with this explosion of growth of people who want to go there because they have lower taxes? You've got people coming from places where they expect services, and they expect places like South Carolina to be nice. I know there are nice places in South Carolina, but it's a bunch. But a lot of the state is not nice at all. And then finally, one last <laughs> point I think Phil Curry has talked about this before on your show, is you know with the tax problems we're having in Connecticut and the budget problems we're having in Connecticut, these are not only – Connecticut's problems. You've got a huge problem with corporations who are not bringing their tax money back to, to the United States, and they're not paying their own way. They're not paying um, what they should be to help the society that's helped grow them. And you've got you've got money parked in, in Ireland that's never coming back here. And unless we can get a hold of – and they're playing all of us off of each other. I mean, whatever the GE people – the GEPR people were, were handing out to smoke must have been pretty strong because they were leaving – to go to Boston because there's 300 colleges there and they're trying to remake themselves as a tech company and all these other arguments that they made are just distractions, and we're just designed to get that uh the tax subsidy so um these arguments that I hear are pretty specious from the Yankee Institute side considering we have a very very high quality of living probably the highest in the United States and Arkansas doesn't, so if you like the taxes <laughs> down there, go have it.
2: well it sounds like um you you appreciate living up here, Josh. Just real quick before I let uh Carol respond. you know we have looming deficits uh in the the future. I mean, how do you want the state legislature to deal with that?
3: Well, I think that it's a bigger issue than just the state legislature. I think it's a national issue because we do have that hunger games type competitive race to the bottom situation with with uh corporate taxes, and there that allows these huge corporations that are basically stateless now and as powerful as it is as many uh uh, many uh, countries governments to play each state off each other for these tax rates that basically do not exist for instance ge i think they paid 250 dollars minimum tax here for a corporation and so there needs to be reform at the federal level because as long as we allow these companies not pay their the, the taxes due in the united states we're going to have these revenue problems. Yeah. And I would point out okay. that All right, Josh, we're, we're going to make the argument to the, to, <laughs> to the Eisenhower 95%. Yeah. No company paid 95%. They spent their money so they wouldn't have to pay the tax, just like a small business owner, which I am, spends out some of my capital at the end of the year to buy equipment that I need and ends up putting the money back into the economy.
2: All right, Josh. Well, thank you for your call. And you know, he said that we need federal reform, but we may be waiting a long time for that. Carol, I was going to say, response? and <laughs> while
0: we wait for the federal reform, of course, we uh, have a uh, some pretty significant deficits. Um, after the $600 million shortfall that had to be resolved this year, in 2018, we're looking at a $1.3 billion deficit. In 2019, that goes up to $1.5 billion. And in 2020, $1.6 billion. So, you know, I love Connecticut. Everyone at Yankee Institute loves Connecticut. That's why we live here. We want everyone who wants to stay to stay here to be able to do that. The problem is that, you know, when you want to debate quality of life, talk to the 237,000 net people who have voted with their feet uh, the, and taking $13.7 billion with them. Um, you know, the fact is that there are some sensible things that we could do that would make our state more competitive, make it easier to open businesses, to grow businesses there are even a couple of taxes that could be eliminated that would benefit uh, the state. You're talking about the death tax? I'm and talking, gift I'm talking tax. about the death tax mm-hmm. because you know the death tax took in $168 million in 2014, which was less than 1% of all tax revenues. But do you know how many affluent older people leave the state because they figure that I'll live for six months and a day in Florida where there is no death tax Come back, enjoy the beautiful quality of life in Connecticut over the summer and not get hit in the end for gift taxes and death taxes.
2: I want to let uh Bill Curry uh, get in here on the conversation uh, bill obviously um you had mentioned that there needs to be um you know more reform in terms of property tax relief um it's been twenty five years since the income tax was implemented. You know where does Connecticut go from here
1: you know i think there there are, there are two points i want to I just want to respond to one thing that uh, point Carol was making earlier, and that is. The idea that we have the highest uh, taxes in the country and the highest business taxes, um, um, hold on, hold on, and, it. And, and that isn't. What it and is. it's sort of, like, I, at least I thought, I, if I didn't hear correctly. But, but we, you know, one, we we don't, and 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 those numbers have been manipulated. I don't mean by the Yankee Policy Institute, but they've been manipulated in debate uh, over the years. It's kind of like that you, you hear this mantra that the United States has the highest corporate tax rates in the world. Even Democratic senators have said it many times and it's simply not true we're in the bottom half we have the highest nominal rates but we have so many loopholes and gimmicks in our tax code that we're not even at the median never mind the very top and so when all these numbers it's like it's like GE announcing they're leaving for the fiscal problems and they've never paid any taxes Uh, I don't know if you changed you know if, if if you changed a small tax in Connecticut that it would have any influence on migration uh, uh, of, of the wealthy or of anyone else. And uh, these seem to be re- problems of regional economies that we're encountering. The second thing I just want to say is that spending reform, in, in, and there are a lot of things we are actually here we agree on. It's mm-hmm. why I actually worked back then. We were the, the two votes that came over were, 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 were Bill Nickerson and Reg Jones in 1991, and they were both from Greenwich, and they knew that their constituents in Fairfield County would actually pay less taxes if we put this particular plan in effect. And they're also great on spending reform. And you know, we, when I was comptroller, uh, I fought for uh, to put the state on the uh, generally accepted accounting principles. The governor said he would do that when he ran. Governor Malloy still hasn't happened. Uh, we need. We have this habit of spending money. Uh, of borrowing money to sp- rather to spend on current expenses rather than genuine capital investments, and our whole approach to how we deal with spending reform there are certain things you can do with with uh, you know we waste fraud and abuse is the mantra that you hear over and over again for years. Our biggest problem is healthcare care spending, and our big and our second biggest problem is ethics uh, the The degree to which our corrupted system spends money it doesn't need to and the degree to which we have failed to deal with health care reform. And those are two areas where, where we could bring down spending substantially with uh, continued applied attention. Uh, and so we need to do all that. And, and lastly, I have a, a little mantra, own. I tell people you can either change the rule or write the check. And part of what a tax code should do is change the rules. And, and, and we say that changing tax codes can, uh, uh, can help uh, re- revive an economy. And it 's true, i don 't think it 's true in the way Carol thinks it 's true, and I probably don 't and I certainly don 't think it has quite as much effect as she does, but if we brought down the property tax and did a set of other things, brought down health care costs then and other costs of doing business for the small businesses that get all the lip service and none of the actual service from either party that every everything I know about economics says that would be the way, and those aren 't the people who leave. They don't ju- they're not just nomads who pull up their corporate no, tents like Pfizer here. after you give That's them right. everything and they move the jobs. Invest in the people who are invested in us.
2: If, if I and might. And the parts
1: of the tax structure that, 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 that affects them the most overwhelmingly is the property tax. Mm.
2: Okay, uh, Bill, we're, we're almost out of time, and I just wanted to thank you again. You guys make uh, talking about uh, tax reform interesting. Bill Curry, former Comptroller of Connecticut and Democratic uh, political analyst, thank you for joining us, Bill.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
2: And Carol, real quick. Well, sure.
0: You know, there are a lot of things we can do to get Connecticut back on the right foot. The first thing we really need to do is to reform public sector employee compensation just to bring it in line with what the private sector makes. We've got good state employees here, and they want to help. They want to do the right thing. So let's just bring everything into balance in the term of in terms of the way they get paid. Lots of money in streamlining social services, and we can encourage economic growth by reducing our regulatory burdens Reducing occupational licensing, putting in a few structural reforms that are not hugely complicated, but even things like um, fixing state employee salaries by statute rather than outsourcing it, zero-based budgeting. There is a way forward, Lucy, and we can find it if people just stop the crazy spending in Hartford.
2: And I believe all the seats are up uh, this November (laughs) in the state legislature, so uh, get out there and vote. Carol platt Liebau, president of the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. This Sunday, the Yankee Institute's holding a brunch at the Sheraton Stanford Hotel, marking the 25th anniversary of the Connecticut income tax, with special guest Grover Norquist, founder of Americans for Tax Reform. And we'll have details on our website about that. Thank you so much for your time, Carol. Always a pleasure, Lucy. This is where we live when we come back, a conversation about Brazilian identity. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Al Latino USA is focusing on Brazilian identity for this Sunday's broadcast here on WNPR and their reporters focused on uh, interviews with Brazilians living in New England to find out whether they consider themselves Latinos. Joining us uh, through uh, ISDN is Marlon Bishop. He's producer for Latino USA and he joins us from the studios on 125th Street, 125th Street rather in Harlem. Marlon, welcome to where we live.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: So why did you decide to focus uh this episode on Brazilians and uh, how they see themselves in this country?
4: Well, at Latino USA our our show is about the Latino experience in the United States and often during editorial meetings uh we would have a story that would come up about Brazil or Brazilian Americans and we'd ask ourselves, well, Brazilian Americans, I mean, is this part of what we're covering at Latino USA? Um and often we we weren't sure. Um And so we decided to finally dedicate an episode to kind of look at the Brazilian-American community uh, and hear stories from the Brazilian-American community kind of, um, you know, just in time for the Rio Olympics and um, talk a little bit uh, about those kind of ways people identify.
2: And why focus in on New England?
4: Well, the entire show is not focused on New England, but... New England is a place where the majority of Brazilian-Americans live. Uh, There's huge Brazilian-American communities in Massachusetts, in um, Rhode Island, in New Jersey, in Connecticut. Uh, I believe Danbury, Connecticut, is the second highest percentage of Brazilian-American population in the country, almost 5%. And um, so we also wanted to, um, you know, go to the the places where Brazilian-Americans were and, and kind of New England is that place.
2: Uh, Latina USA shared some tape with us uh, from that episode, again, airing Sunday. Um, here's uh, Nadalicia Tracy, executive director of the Brazilian Workers' Center in Boston, an organization that helps Brazilian immigrants with job placement. And we're going to hear her speaking to the idea that Brazilians came to New England for a reason, which is this long-standing Portuguese presence.
0: Historically, this is a place where the Portuguese settled, right? Cambridge, Somerville, uh, and many of the parts of Massachusetts have been a-, a corridor for the Portuguese to settle. And we have this idea that if you are from Portugal, because of colonialism, that uh, you're gonna have you know language affinity
2: and cultural affinity. So, Marlon. Um- Framingham Mass is somewhere that in mass that Massachusetts it has like a, a hub for Brazilian Americans. you find a lot of them there
4: absolutely uh Framingham, uh you know in our episode, we have uh, a piece about Framingham, kind of a profile of the town and uh you know, just bouncing off what Natalicia just said, um you know the reason that so many Brazilian Americans and so many Brazilian immigrants ended up settling in New England is because there's this long standing Portuguese presence in the region um you know. In, in addition, and actually, lusophone presence in general, uh, Cape Verdeans as well. There, there are many in New England, and that has a lot to do with maritime trades, um, which many Portuguese immigrants were involved with, and New England was a place that they settled. And so, when Brazilians started coming in kind of larger numbers, especially um, in in the eighties uh, after and and during during and after the uh, dictatorship, um, they ended up, you know, going places where exactly there would be language affinity, where there would be. Um, you know, it would be easy to settle because people would be able to understand them. And so now you have places like Framingham, um, which, you know, is the center of a a region called Little Brazil, you know, and in Massachusetts, where you can find Brazilian stores and and bakeries and businesses everywhere. And, you know, um, as is a story for immigrants all over the United States, people go where uh, often where they feel like, they'll be comfortable at first.
2: You mentioned uh, bakeries. Uh, there's a great place in uh, P-Town, a Portuguese bakery. So just, uh, again, that history of, of, the, of <laughs> these people coming here um, and having a, a life here. We also hear from uh, Natalicia Tracy um, saying that Brazilians are a newer immigrant group. Uh, what does she mean by that?
4: Well, uh, what I was kind of saying a second ago is that uh, Brazilian you know, aren't a huge community in the United States. There's somewhere between three hundred and four hundred thousand and 400,000 Brazilian Americans in the U.S. Um, And, you know, there's been a varied migration history, but a lot of Brazilian immigrants arrived in the 80s. And uh, so you're kind of having um, a community that is still very much growing um, and, you know, is still planting roots in a lot of ways.
2: And we're going to hear her talk about this next generation forming a new kind of Brazilian-American identity.
0: And I think that will continue to create space for people who are here. The conditions in Brazil are sort of forcing more and more Brazilians to really think about staying and, and, and what it means to stay instead of just being a guest worker or a student, but really what it means to become... An American and, and move away from my country
2: uh, Marlon, can we talk more about you know now how Brazilian Americans, how they see their um, how they identify and you know do they consider themselves Latinos?
4: Well, it's a complicated question uh, as we found out you know in in a lot of ways, um, you know one of the things we did is, is we sent out reporters to ask people on the street basically in different areas where a lot of Brazilian Americans live in, in Newark, New Jersey, and in Somerville, Massachusetts and uh, asked people, how do you identify? Do you identify as Latino? And uh, we got all sorts of answers. There were people who said, absolutely not, no way, I'm Brazilian. Uh, There were people who said, of course, uh, you know, we're from Latin America, we're Latinos. Um, So I think it's a complicated question in a lot of ways. Um, You know, there are definitely major kind of cultural similarities between people of different Latin American backgrounds. But to begin with, Latino is kind of this catch-all term that really includes people from a really wide variety of backgrounds. You know, uh, you have Puerto Ricans and Mexicans, uh, you know, and people from all sorts of backgrounds who are grouped together on this umbrella. And I think for a lot of Brazilian immigrants who are new to the United States, they're kind of confused why that happens. Um and I think for people who have been here for a little bit longer, they kind of get used to it. I remember one person that we spoke with said, well, in Brazil, we don't have this concept, so why would mm-hmm. I identify as Latino? Um, and so I, I think part of that is kind of how people, how people identify has a lot to do with, with, their, with their context, of course, and the, and the kind of American context of how we talk about race and identity is very different from how it's talked about in Brazil.
2: When they say that you know we're all Brazilian, does that play into this myth that there's you know a racial democracy that Brazil? I mean, no matter uh, the the tone of your skin, that they're all equal.
4: Um, So Brazil is famous for kind of having this attitude of of racial democracy, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, indeed, you know, there's ways in which that is true. Um, You know, there is a great pride and love for Afro Brazilian culture, for example, in Brazil. um, There is a, uh, you know, real valuing of, of that route, But at the same time, there is tremendous inequality in Brazil um, that can be seen.
2: I know I, from our producer, we had a few weeks ago, we had spoken uh, to uh, Bishop John Selders, um, who is a Connecticut resident and one of the leaders of Moral Monday Connecticut here, a Black Lives Matter uh, activist. And he was able to go over to Rio uh, before the Olympics. I understand he's also in the episode of the Sunday?
4: Yes, that's correct.
2: And you also spoke to other activists like uh, Waltrina Middleton. I'm reading here she's a preacher as well as an organizer and founder at Cleveland Action, a human rights resource in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Again, Latino USA was able to share some tape. And here Waltrina is speaking about her perceptions after visiting Brazil and meeting Afro-Brazilian activists there.
4: A lot of the sisters and brothers we met were just so excited about us being there, but Their connection with their African roots and heritage and the boldness in the ways that they embrace their heritage and their roots and the love that they have for their blackness, that pride, is something that we still fight and struggle for here in the United States as black people.
2: On the flip side, Marlon, how do the activists in Brazil feel about uh, the Black Lives Movement here?
4: Well, uh one of the pieces on our show is uh about kind of this resonance between Black Lives Matters uh, uh Black Lives Matter activists in the US and uh people kind of fighting for racial justice and police reform in Brazil. Um and uh what the, what that's about in a lot of ways is that there are very very strong parallels. You know, um police violence towards Afro-Brazilian youth is a major uh issue in Brazil. Um you know, the kind of rates of, of police killings are, are far higher in Brazil than they are in the U.S. And, uh, th- you know, um, these group of Black Lives Matters activists went to Brazil specifically to meet with a group called the Mais de Maio, uh, who have come together, um, their mothers who have uh, lost children um, in police shootings in Brazil, and kind of finding ways in, to kind of internationalize that struggle and realize that it's not just based in one place. Um, And so that is, I think, something that was very interesting for us to think about.
2: Uh, Before the Olympics, again, I know this program we focused on, um, you know, because of the spotlight on uh, Brazil uh, in the lead up to the Olympics, you know, maybe there would be some impact um, on the social justice issues happening in that country. What's your take?
4: Well, I think it actually um, the impact that there was was also kind of complicated. You know, in Rio, there was something called pacification units Mm -hmm. that were put together by the police that were kind of meant to uh, quote-unquote clean out the favelas, um, with the idea of kind of liberating them from drug gangs. And, uh, you know, that was a move that was applauded by certain sectors of Brazilian society. But, you know, what that meant in reality a lot of times was, you know, pu- you know heavily armed police units going in and, you know, um, you know kind of guns blazing. And, and a lot of people got killed in the crossfire. Um, and so that was definitely a kind of, um, you know, complicated human rights question.
2: You have to wonder with all the money spent on the infrastructure and in the lead up to the Olympics, you know, how any of that will trickle down uh, to the people who are living there in poverty.
4: Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I haven't particularly studied that issue, but uh, Brazil has kind of major, major inequality problems. Uh, there is a, a small percent of the population that is fabulously wealthy and uh, a very – Large part of the population that is not been included in uh, in those kind of economic gains, and uh, you know there have been major gains for the kind of working class in Brazil over the last decade. Uh, you know, there are millions of people have seen their uh, incomes rise to uh, what is called the classe C, um, which is a kind of, you know, I guess a lower middle class in Brazil, but a, a consumer class that had never existed before. Um, and but Olympics are not, uh, you know, Brazil is in a deep recession right now. And some of those gains have been lost. And, you know, that's been very hard on on working class Brazilians.
2: I want to thank Marlon Bishop. He's a producer for Latino USA. He joined us from the studios uh, at 125th Street in Harlem. Again, Latino USA airs Sundays at 9 p.m. on WNPR. And this weekend, uh, the episode focuses in on our Brazilians Latinos. Thank you so much, Marlon, for speaking with us.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Okay, it's the NFL preseason. And next, we're talking to a Super Bowl champion. You'll know him if you're a Packers fan. I'm talking to you, Colin McEnroe. George Coons Jr. joins us to talk about life after football. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, from caring for a family member with Alzheimer's to supporting a relative with a disability, caregiving can take a toll on your physical and emotional health, and it also impacts your finances. On the next Where We Live, we'll explore caregivers who live in Connecticut and find out who, if anyone, supports them. That's tomorrow. Coming up right now, the NFL season kicks off in just three weeks. Fans are gearing up to tailgate on Sundays, digging out the jerseys from the closet. Some are even building their own fantasy football teams. But is all this obsession justified for such a violent sport? We've heard a lot recently about the long-term effects concussions can have on players in the NFL, among other athletes and other franchises. But the br- brutality of the sport takes its toll in other ways, as well as many players who struggle to build a new life after they retire. Here to talk about life after football and America's obsession with the game is George Koontz Jr., former NFL player, Super Bowl champion, and co-author of the book, is there life after football? Surviving the NFL, George. Welcome to where we live.
5: Well, thank you for having me on.
2: So currently, you're the vice president of advancement at Marion University. That's right.
5: Yeah, well, senior, uh, I received a, pro- a promotion about a couple weeks ago. Oh,
2: congratulations. Uh, yep,
5: senior vice president for university uh, relations. So,
2: so you were a linebacker uh, for the Packers. So you've been able to uh, have a good life after football.
5: Well, yes, but uh, yes and no. Uh, my quality of life mm. isn't the typical uh, life that a, a 47-year-old, 48-year-old uh, would have if they did not play football. So I'm dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, and uh, I'm trying to make the best out of it.
2: So as a linebacker, a lot of hits and a lot of joint issues after football?
5: Yep, a lot of hits, a lot of joint issues, a lot of head trauma. Mm. Uh had about 11 concussions. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, documented concussions that I played when I when I played and and uh now that's starting to to take a, a a toll on me you know when you uh when you see the collisions on on Sunday or Saturday or Monday night uh you see everything from an external mm-hmm. but also there's something going on internally and, and 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 more times than not it's the brain and and the brain is moving around inside your skull and you really don't see the effects of that until later on in life
2: so you've had health challenges after retiring from football, uh, but you were able to launch into a new career.
5: Yes, I, I always wanted to get into the uh, administrative side of things—not necessarily the the coaching—but always wanted to to see if I can uh, work behind the scenes and and give players, uh, give student athletes, a chance at the American dream. Because if it wasn't for a, a football scholarship, I would have never had a chance to go to college, so I'm so indebted to the individuals that, that donated money to the, uh, to the university that I went to, uh, they, they thought enough of me and saw the talent in me to offer me a scholarship, and that was at East Carolina University, and I was so fortunate that I was able to go on and, and receive a degree, and I, I like school so much, uh, my mom told me to keep going.
2: <laughs> and so you uh, have a soci- sociology advanced degree, right?
5: Well, yep. I have a PhD in sociology, master's in sports management. Uh, 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 one of uh, two uh, Green Bay Packers. I think we've had over the Packers been playing football since 1919. Uh, about 7,000 men to wear the green and gold. Mm-hmm. Only two to to go on and receive a, a PhD, and I'm and I'm very fortunate to be one of them.
2: So, why did you think about co-authoring this book about focusing on is life? Is there life after football?
5: Well, when I was uh, going to grad school at Marquette University and I was having a conversation with some professors and uh, the topic came up about uh, uh, your your dissertation, uh, what are you going to write your dissertation on? And I said that whatever I write my dissertation on, hopefully it can uh, make change. So I said, well, let me talk about, I love to talk about the issues and the challenges one one goes through. Uh, when they leave the NFL because we've all heard the horror stories that the average football player plays three and a half years and uh uh twenty four months after he's done he he's uh financially broke. Mm. And I just wanted to to write uh about a lot of the success stories, uh some of uh some of the not so good uh success stories and uh try to put a roadmap together for the parents uh for mainly for the parents who's gonna be deciding whether their their young son is gonna be engaging in the sport of football.
2: Let's talk about uh life in the NFL bubble. What does that mean and how does that impact what you were saying, where many of them leave their career and then they end up being financially broke. Well uh
5: the bubble I would say is it's an is a, a control environment. Uh from from the age of, of nine years old I was I entered into a bubble and that bubble lasted until I was about 32 years old. Uh, I was given a scholarship. I had I had trainers taking care of me. I had academic advisors. I had tutors. Uh, I, I had financial planners as I got into the pros. So a lot of the things that the, the, the ordinary person, or let's say my classmate who so happened didn't play sports, didn't have access to. And then when the bubble burst, uh, I was uh, forced. To, to learn how to uh to balance a checkbook, I was thirty two years old and didn't know how to ba- balance a checkbook and I think that's uh, that's uncalled for mm-hmm.
2: remind me when what year you retired and, and how have you seen any outreach to these young players uh, once they're done with their careers has, has it changed at all
5: Well um my first year was ninety two and I played until two thousand i've basically been out fifteen years I think there's a a, 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 a plethora plethora of information available uh from from the colleges and from the NFL and from um the, the different uh, professional uh teams but the thing about it uh the players have to be willing to accept it the players have to be able to uh uh seek that seek that information and that knowledge out it's hard to tell someone when you're 21 22 years old that they need to start a a, a 401k or annuity mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times there you know i I've, I've been striving working for 20 something years to to get a bite at this apple and i want to do what i uh what i think i should do and uh, uh because a lot of them are first generation and, and we know there's nothing wrong with being first generation but when you're first in your family to to go to college and you're first in your family to to uh uh to go to the national football league uh, that's There's going to be some pitfalls along the way, and uh, uh, more times than not, uh, a lot of those players, they hit those pitfalls.
2: Mm-hmm. So you're saying when uh, you're a professional player, you're in the moment, you're living each day, uh, you're not thinking about the future and what happens when the career is over.
5: Right, because each player thinks they're going to play 10, 12, 13 years. You know, you're young, you're strong, uh, you're fast, uh, you're mean. <laughs> uh, so all of them think they're going to play, you know, 10, 12 years. And and the unfortunate, unfortunate news is that they're only going to play three and a half.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm speaking and, with uh, George Kuntz, Jr. He's a former NFL player, and he co-authored a book, Is There Life After Football? Surviving the NFL. He played for the Packers, Super Bowl champion. You have that ring. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, when we talk when we think about the problem of concussions and all of the research and science that has come out uh, this is a very violent sport you mentioned it earlier that um you know you've had um, some effects from your concussions is the NFL doing enough to help players or is it just this you know make the big buck and people will keep tuning in um each fall
5: i think so i think that uh the research is getting uh better and better each year uh i, I, I don't think that uh, uh it, it stops uh, at the door of uh, the NFL I think we have to wind back the clock a little bit more and and, and go back to even uh, little league football and pop warner, uh middle school and high school. I think that if there, if there is blame, I think there's enough blame to go around. But I think the NFL is doing a, a, a tremendous job of of uh putting in different protocols when when, when a uh player uh start going through the whole concussion uh uh issues and uh, problems they have now a protocol that they must uh they must go through and they must adhere to so i'm 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 very very happy to to see that the nfl has stepped up because there's going to be a a trickle down effect down to the uh you know college high school middle school and pop warner youth football league
2: do you think that um uh Americans' obsession with football it hurts the hurts the impact of of trying to be more proactive about you know caring about these pro athletes when they retire.
5: Well, I think so. I really believe so. I think that the uh, the NFL, I think football, high school, I think that's the the fabric of our great nation. I think it, it's the it's the number one sport. But also, too, we have to do some things to take care of our players and well as well. And that's going to happen. It's going to take some time. It didn't take uh, – this didn't happen overnight. Uh, I think one of the reasons why it's, it's happening uh because the players are, are so much bigger, faster, and stronger mm-hmm. than, than, let's say, back in the 60s and the 70s. But now we just have to have to figure out how to, to slow it down just a tad uh, and take the head out of the game. We have to take the head out of the football game, whereas when I was younger and learning how to tackle, mm-hmm. uh, I was taught to lead with my head. Uh, no longer that's the way you should be taught to play the game of football. And football is going to be fine. It's just going to take a couple years to uh, to get everything, get everybody on the same page.
2: Well, we're almost out of time, George, but just uh, two questions for you. First, you know, advice for parents who, you know, love the sport and want to see uh, their children play in football. And then your advice to current players who are planning to retire.
5: Well, uh, to parents, uh, please uh by all means uh give your son and in some cases give give your daughter a chance to play because i think that uh I, I, I really believe the positives outweigh the negatives uh i played with numerous guys that never never had a, a concussions uh so please uh uh let your uh, uh let your kids play and just make sure you have a uh, a good coach uh, that's teaching them the proper technique and tackling uh to the player that's currently in the national football league or 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 in college that has the uh, uh the promise of of graduating from college with their football scholarship or if you just if you're on the division 3 level and you don't have a scholarship and you're looking forward to graduating uh just make sure you, you you play as hard as you can but also study as hard as you can as well uh find that passion that same passion that you have uh, running around on the football field, or that same passion that you have uh, in the weight room—you uh, have to find that same passion that you can impact your community and help people. Always, always remember: give back to someone, help them uh, to, to to achieve their dreams.
2: And when the the football career ends, uh, that take that same passion into a, a new a new career, and, and they they can do it.
5: Yes, they can do it, without what, what a doubt, without a doubt.
2: I want to thank George Coons Jr. His book is called Is There Life After Football? Surviving the NFL. He's uh, currently, uh, but tell me again, your title at the, at Se- the Fond du Luck.
5: Yep, yep. S- Senior Vice President at Marion University.
2: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. And, and um, now that the interview is over, I thought I'd tell you that I grew up a Steelers fan.
5: Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Oh, God. I'm glad you took You just gave me heartburn.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much, George, for your time. All right. Bye-bye. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Special thanks to executive producer Katie tolarski You can continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash live I'm Lucy nalt Thanks for listening.